Hello, everyone, and welcome to the More Deadly Podcast, where we discuss horror movies directed specifically by women-identified directors. And we are so excited about today's very special episode, because joining us to talk about her new film, Slacks, now available on Shudder, is director Elsa Kephart. Hi, everyone. I am super happy to be here. I'm so excited that there's a podcast for horror films directed by women. Yeah, that is totally our passion project. We're kind of obsessed with women directors <laughs> because <laughs> what we found kind of along the way is that it's so, I mean, maybe this has not been your experience, so you can speak to this, but it's so hard to become a successful director anyway, but I feel like it's even harder for women to do so. So to break through that, it creates a batch of extraordinary women. So it's very exciting to us. Well, it is. I mean, I never realized that there was a disparity between men and women when I got out of film school and when I started making films. But then I wasn't I was seeing male, uh, you know, colleagues get ahead and I wasn't and I, I internalized it and I just thought I wasn't good enough. And then I realized, no, actually, <laughs> there's a big problem <laughs> with right. with uh, women being given the the financing and having the industry having confidence in women directors. So once I realized that it was a huge a huge relief. And then I realized I just had to fight extra hard and it wasn't mm -hmm. my fault. Right. Do you feel like it's changing or getting better? For sure. I mean, I'm in Quebec and here we're government funded. So there's definitely a lot of accountability and there's a great group called uh, Equitable D Female Directors oh. in Quebec that did a, a huge survey, um, a huge study actually of the unequitable allocation of funding and once that came out you know the numbers didn't lie so the institution were just sort of there's nothing they could say because it was sheer numbers and so they really worked really hard in the last five years to institute a huge shift and I can honestly say that there's been a huge shift in Quebec and m many more films are directed by women I would say almost half at least wow I, I can't I don't think higher budget films yet are at parity, but definitely like below 2 million Canadian are. Well, that's great. Wow. That's a start, right? <laughs> yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, that's awesome. So we have been super excited about your movie Slacks because we've been hearing about it for a couple of years now and just waiting to get our hands on it. Yeah, We finally have gotten a chance to see it. So as a director, how are you feeling about it finally getting to be experienced by a wide audience with its release on Shutter? Well, it's just so super awesome. I mean, it's a, it's a story that I came up with with my co-writer, Patricia Gomez-Latar, who was also um, one of the producers over 20 years ago. Oh, <laughs> so wow. it's like we're giving birth to an adult baby. <laughs> oh and people have been hearing about slacks for like almost my whole life and you know everyone's like when are you making slacks when are you making slacks so the fact that we've actually made it and that it's it turned out really good actually i think beyond my expectations and that the the reviews are great and people are really connecting with it is just beyond my wildest dreams i have to say Oh, well, congratulations. I'm so glad it's finding an audience. It, it was a ton of fun. I watched it last night and I was hopeful like and you know, you get excited about a movie and then you get let down. That was not the case. It was Yay. everything I wanted and then more. So oh, for those, awesome. yeah, you should be, I'm sure very, very proud of it. So we know a little bit about your background, but can you tell us a little bit about how you got started in directing and what drew you to that? 
Sure. I mean, I wanted to, I've been wanting to be a director since I was 10 years old. So it was always super clear to me that since I was really young, that I wanted to be an artist. And then at around 10, 10, 10 until 16, you know, it was directing, directing, directing. And then my parents were extremely supportive. And so when I decided to go to film school, they, they supported me in that decision. And then you know, it's been a long road, but I've always wanted to make films and, and I got to work in the film industry in Montreal. So got my feet wet, really finding out how, how films worked. So that's, that's been it. It's just been something I've always wanted to do. And horror films, I didn't really realize until I left school and came back to Montreal, made my first feature that I wanted to make horror films. But mm-hmm. then it became really clear after that one, the Graveyard Alive, it's called Graveyard Alive, a zombie nurse in love. If you haven't checked it out, it's <laughs> available on great. YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I don't know. I I love weird, bizarre horror fantasy. That's really just I've always loved that since I was a really young kid. So it's been a long road, but it's I've always been on this road, and so it's just taken a lot longer than I I thought. But it's I'm sticking to my path, and I'm being true to it. Mm-hmm. I always feel like horror in general is kind of the perfect like if you have um, a belief or a message that you want to give it's sort of that perfect gateway (laughs) genre because in order to enjoy those movies you kind of have to like open yourself up and then you can give that information without their defenses being up in a way that's one of the things I love so much about horror I I have to agree that's that's totally true yeah (laughs) so how do you approach directing? Do you have a, like a philosophy or a particular style you adhere to when you're directing? Um, I mean, I think I have an, an inherent style. I couldn't really articulate it, but I know the films that I love. And I know when I design a film, it sort of mirrors the films that I really love. I really love Italian films from the 60s and 70s, really bright colorful really bold uh framing um so it's it comes from my mind like I'll be writing and then I have some of the images in my mind and some of the color schemes so when I write it comes out in the script and I I always do a lookbook as I'm writing Mm -hmm. and then I communicate that to my to my team and and I don't articulate it necessarily like in theoretical terms but I'll I'll be really drawn to like a certain lens or a certain way to frame it and then as I it's in my shot breakdowns I I realize that there's a pattern but I'm not I don't do it consciously I think if you do it consciously then you're like it's it can become mechanical mm-hmm. and too theoretical but if it's really coming from from within and then once you see, realize there's a pattern and you sort of guide that that visual uh, or color pattern um, then I think that's when for me at least it rings really true when I see that it's coming from the unconscious that's and it I, I didn't realize it was like that it took me a few films to find that way of working but but in slacks I have to say really coalesced and uh it was hard the first few days, I have to say. I wasn't quite as confident. And then and then I was like, okay, you're doing this. You just take that viewfinder and you tell them what lens you want. And then I was just at it. And then the first DC would be like, so I'm going to guess you want the 25 for this. And I was like, well, yes, you are right. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. That's great. 
So we've read about your production company, Midnight Kingdom Films, and that it focuses on horror and fantasy. Can you tell us a little bit about your production company and why you created it? Sure. I mean, I've I produced co-produced my first two features. I, I didn't produce Slacks, um, but I've always been involved in developing my own material and. Um, and I used to be able to apply for grants myself in development. So that's why I had to uh, established a production company. And now, unfortunately, it's I can't anymore. I have to go through my, my producing <laughs> partner. I mean, I really love the title and I feel it represents um, my me well. And so I wanted to put my my films under that sort of aegis uh, rather than just say like Elsa Kephart's website, because I feel it's it's more like a, a vibe and a philosophy. Um, I like anything that's really strange and dark and um, just offbeat. So that's that's what it is. But so it's it's basically like me and my house <laughs> writing <laughs> writing scripts. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm I'm making little experimental shorts uh, these days. So I wouldn't say I have a real yeah. production company. It's more like a development company mm -hmm. that I then find uh, accredited partners to work with. Okay, great. That great. sounds really great. And again, it comes to that sort of ethos of women directors just making space for themselves. Mm -hmm. I think that's so cool. Yeah. So cool. We need to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so every once in a while you hear a concept that is just like so perfect that you need to see it come to life. And I think Killer Jeans is definitely <laughs> one of them. Can you tell us a, a little bit about how you came up with the concept with your co-writer Patricia Gomez? Yeah, it was a it was a total lark. We were on a road trip with another friend and we were we were like sisters basically. So we were harassing each other oh. about like words that we really hate like she hates the words the word panties and our other friend hated the words <laughs> hates the word slacks so to be a real like annoying friend i kept repeating slacks over and over to her and then patricia and i were like it sounds like it's a killer it sounds like it's a pair of killer pants and we were like yes and then we just sort of sat with this concept for a long time we wrote one draft that was really bad it took place in the high school and then we it was a very long process. And then years later we rewrote it because Patricia had worked at the gap and she's like, wait, I think it should be about, it should take place in a clothing store. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> so the, the, idea, the idea, which is the, the, the idea that works so well that it takes place in a clothing store was not the, the initial idea at all. It's crazy. And then the, I rewrote the third draft in part because I'd seen this documentary called The True Cost. Uh, it's about fast fashion. And I mean, people had been telling me for ages, like, write slacks, you write slacks, it's great. And finally, I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. So I rented this documentary and I was like, oh, oh my God, I know exactly what to do. So then like, in a mad dash, I rewrote the script in like two weeks. And so it took, I, I say it, it took 20 years because it did, but it took three drafts that we wrote really, really in quickly so it's a weird it was a weird process but when we realized it had to be about you know uh, a young girl avenging her death and I don't want to this isn't really a spoiler but it was like wait why didn't we think of this at the beginning <laughs> I think the idea was waiting for us to mature it was just sort yeah. of hanging out and then people uh -huh. were like oh you can't really make a film about killer pants it's gonna last five minutes and we're like no it's gonna be great but the drafts weren't really great so we matured we had to mature in order to tell the story. Mm -hmm. 
That's yeah. great. I think you can really see that in the film because it is a really tight script where there isn't a lot of superfluous things mm-hmm. in it. It's all just so entertaining. One of the things that I really appreciated about this movie, and we talked about this a little bit before, is how it took a really fun, silly concept like Killer Jeans. And then without losing that sense of fun, it also delivered a very incisive political statement about fast fashion and the emptiness of corporate virtue signaling. Mm -hmm. Um, It made me think a lot about what's happening in China with the Uyghurs and the slave labor being used to produce cotton. So with all of that stuff in mind, can you talk a little bit about the political aspects of the movie and why you included them? When I started doing research for the second draft, I did research on uh, fast fashion practices, and I was really appalled. I mean, I've always been conscious of um, corporate brainwashing ever since I was really, really young. I don't know why, but it's always been on my mind, and it's always been something that's really uh, made me super angry. And so it was there in the back of my mind, Um, and as I did more and more research and watched films and videos, I got just super pissed and uh yeah the virtue signaling i had never heard of that term but it's exactly that it's such empty bullshit and i was like oh no you don't i'm gonna so call you out on this good (laughs) i mean i we had to when i watched that documentary the true cost i was so mad i went for a walk and i was like f you f you i'm gonna take you down (laughs) and it just like poured out of me this like hatred of all this hypocrisy Mm -hmm. this corporate hypocrisy that really i mean fast fashion is one of them but like everything technology beauty products like just everything is just Mm -hmm. bullshit (laughs) yeah absolutely (laughs) absolutely so that was very conscious like i i want this film to be a political message i want people to understand that and to be irate and to really question our our Mm -hmm. corporate practices and why we're sort of brainwashed to to consume it's not a natural state of being right 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 right. i bet it was probably very cathartic to be able to oh yeah kind of put it out there in such unflinching terms (laughs) yes yes and i actually love the craig character like i love him so much it was so fun to write him yeah oh i i can't even imagine (laughs) his arc is incredible (laughs) it really is and the performance is so good. Yeah. He was like the epitome of love to hate, but also kind of love to love, but also love yes. to hate. <laughs> <laughs> he was great. And he's super nice, Brett Donahue. He's like a really lovely actor. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Awesome. <laughs> That's so great. So obviously as horror fans, we loved that there was lots of blood and gore in this movie and that it appeared to be completely done in practical effects. I'd love to hear about that, but also, is it hard to do that on an indie budget? Uh, I mean, we did it. It was hard, but not that hard. We were all really keen, like all the, the producers and the SFX team, we all wanted to, it to be practical because we all grew up watching horror films from the 80s and 90s. So there was never a question about it. And... I mean, we didn't really price out how much it would cost to, to go all digital because it was never a, an issue. I mean, it was tough. What's the, actually the toughest are the resets, the blood resets. Oh, oh I bet. Right. It's not so much doing the effects, but it's the resets of having to clean the actor, clean the set, 
you know, it's, it just eats up your day. So we had very few takes, but I mean, my mm. first film, we were, had such a low budget that we had like one or two takes max. So I grew up with that mentality that you have to get it right, you know, in the first couple of takes of, of, you know, right. effects stuff. So it was tough, but we made it work. And I had a great editor who really knew like how to cut around things that maybe didn't work so well uh, on the day. So I don't know, in the end, it, it I was really happy. Everyone was really happy about that yeah. part of it. Yeah, it came out great. When the the guy gets eaten by the pants, I was cheering. <laughs> it's just so much fun. So just like splattery and joyful. And hopefully it gets greened in large audiences because I feel like this is one of those ones that's so fun to watch yeah. with like a big group oh, of people. Yeah. You know, it's just, yeah, it's such a joyful horror movie and such a great midnight movie. Yeah. I would love to see this with a bunch of gore hounds. Oh, yeah. We were really <laughs> sad that COVID sort of you know, I, I'm not going to say F, but uh, F'd everything up. Um, but maybe, <laughs> you know, maybe there'll be a special screening at one point. Yes, that would be that fun. would be, And that was what I was imagining, like a big screening, mm-hmm. a big mini- midnight. So I had to really sort of do my grieving over the loss of that. So it's great that yeah, everyone sure. online is being really supportive. Yeah, definitely. And you never know what happens. You know what I mean? This feels like it could definitely develop some sort of cult following and definitely end up on some big screens. I would not be surprised at all. At all. I hope so. (laughs) So one of the things that really stuck out to me watching this movie is just how amazing everything is with the pants themselves. How were you able to pull that off? Was it all puppetry? Was there CGI in there somewhere? It was mainly puppetry. Um, we really wanted to to have a, a like a physical presence of slacks on the set. Um, uh-huh. So we, the SFX company, created like I don't know forty different kinds of puppets, um, and we had one main puppeteer, a, a woman who played slacks. Um, it was enhanced at certain points by by VFX, but you know, especially with the pant army, we only had four, so we had to duplicated but um okay. it was mainly mainly practical live on the set and we really wanted the the characters to interact with with the pants so you know we had to do rehearsals <laughs> and we had to do a lot of testing but i think it really pays off in the end there's a real i really wanted slacks or, the, or kirat to become a character and i mm-hmm. thought that it would be it was really important that she be like a tangible tangible entity yeah well it was very successful and so entertaining one of my favorite parts is when slacks is on the floor and the pockets lift up to make ah, eyes yes <laughs> so <laughs> great yeah. <laughs> yeah that's the one moment where we wanted it to be sort of cute uh-huh <laughs> we were like oh it loves bollywood music yeah <laughs> and then it kills people yeah. <laughs> Some of the creepiest shots are just a bunch of them all feasting in one place. Mm. It's it's so great. It's so great the way that they took on characters and the way that you, you manipulated the pants themselves into faces is really impressive. Yeah, yeah. We had a we had to do a lot of a lot of tests and we, we decided to use a gene company that's actually fair trade and equitable. Ooh, I love the oh, irony. Yes, yes. yes. And they're they're from um, Montreal, and so we we you know we had to also find the company and then 
they had to test the to test out the moves of the genes with these actual genes so there was a lot of moving parts and yeah the they were really great to work with oh that's great that's great. So the jeans liked Bollywood music. Um, and that Bollywood dance sequence is just that pitch perfect absurdity. I cracked up. I loved it. Can you tell me a little bit about how that scene came to be and why you decided to include it in the film? Sure. I mean, we wanted music to be present and to be part of Kirat's character. So that's why we have uh, her and the women sort of humming at the beginning. And in a way, the, it was important for Slacks to connect with Shruti, the South Asian character, because she mm-hmm. doesn't kill her, right? Because she's singing Bollywood music that she recognizes. <laughs> and it, it really humanizes her because she's a young girl who, who yeah. hears a song that she's, we can imagine she's familiar with and just has a good time for a split second. And it, mm-hmm. it, I don't know, I found that it humanizes the character a lot and it, and it, sort of makes a loop to uh, in the end when they lure it with with the Bollywood music it just also worked mm-hmm. nicely with the with the plot and so yes. it all just sort of strangely fit together mm-hmm. yeah yeah I guess that is right before that sort of character turn where suddenly there's a role reversal and you see who the true villain is yeah. <laughs> is right around the scene but it's great that you were able to sort of weave in this definitely memorable scene into real plot significance and how it becomes pretty bittersweet after that is really cool yeah and we worked with a Bollywood dancer and choreographer who's emigrated from India to to Montreal so it was we really wanted it to be authentic we didn't just want to be like oh Let's try some moves that were totally not <laughs> authentic. And same for the Hindi writing. You know, we had to get the, the the message translated into Hindi. And then we had someone to really watch to make sure that the writing looked like Hindi. And we didn't make any, uh, or Sanskrit, I guess, is the, is the written form of Hindi. So, yeah, we really wanted it to be authentic and didn't want to just like oh we'll just have, have some scribbles and that's gonna look right, fun right. like we wanted it to be true to the to Kiret's culture I do love the the juxtaposition of this very sad and poignant story being told as she's drawing it out with a dismissive <laughs> hand <on the> <laughs> these, are the, these are the touches that really put this movie over the top it's, 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 oh and it's when insane. the jeans wear the mannequin torso <laughs> Oh, it's so good. It's so There's good. so many parts that cracked me up. Oh, They're so great. That was like, it, it It just popped out of Patricia's mind. Like, she came up with some really insane bits, like the bindi, the blood bindi. She's like, yes. we yes. have to uh-huh. have a blood bindi. I'm like, yes. <laughs> so great. So great. That's great. So we like to ask everybody if there is something in all of the interviews that you've given that nobody has asked you about the movie or the filmmaking experience that you were kind of hoping somebody might ask or that you mm. wanted to talk about that we haven't covered. I guess, yeah, I would say, I mean, I've talked about this in French, but in the French media, uh, but I really, and this is going to be the like political hour, but I really yes, would like. <laughs> I really, really. Fashion is a huge uh, producer of greenhouse gases, and mm-hmm. we are literally in like in a climate emergency. And yeah. the more fashion, more fast fashion is the, absolutely the last thing this planet needs. It's non-essential, mm-hmm. and I would ask everyone to to watch the film and you know enjoy it at face value, but also to really think about their their consumption practices and to just ask mm-hmm. themselves if they really 
need that item if they can use something or recycle you know uh, recycle by something secondhand um and just and look i have a hard time not buying stuff i totally admit it i'm like ooh, i, I go secondhand shopping most of the time but even secondhand shopping i'm like ooh, i need that skirt and i'm like why did you buy this you don't need this and so it's you know it's hard we've been really have been programmed to consume uh, i read a lot about this it's not like it just it's not accidental yeah and so i would urge everyone to just rethink about the aspect of consumption in their life and try to re program themselves to really wonder mm -hmm. if they need it if they think they really need it or, or if it's if it's an outside force like the fashion the fast fashion industry that's been that sort of stirs up this desire that's actually you know not healthy for the mm -hmm. for the planet yeah definitely and sometimes around climate change it can feel so big yeah. and so out of your control or so expensive like having to change your car mm. having to become energy independent this is actually something that saves you money yeah. and that you yourself can do yeah. that actually has an impact yeah oh yeah absolutely yeah. it's uh weaponize that capitalism <laughs> supply and demand <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely we, we all have the power not to purchase something Mm -hmm. And so I think I don't have the stats right in front of me, but like people buy so much and throw away so much nowadays. Yeah. It's and it's not normal. Yeah. It's really been created by this monster fashion industry. So, yeah, if you want to do something for climate change, if you want to try to get a little bit of control back into your your life about this huge topic, then not purchasing firsthand clothing. Secondhand clothing is is OK, but. The thing is, even if you purchase firsthand clothing and then you're like, well, I'll just give it away. There's already too many clothes. Like there's yeah, yeah. so many secondhand yeah. clothes. People <laughs> don't know, like all those stores, those secondhand stores don't know what to do with it. They export it to, to African countries, mostly to Haiti, wow. which kills the local economy, uh, fa um, wow. garment economy and just ends up in landfills. Yeah. Yeah. On that note, yeah. I mean, it's something you can do, like you can actually yeah. have yeah. control over. So I think that's exciting. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think every little bit does add up to a lot. Yeah, absolutely. So, but the first thing is actually even recognizing that there's an opportunity there. Yeah. And that's what one of the things that's so great about Slacks is, yeah, I get to watch people get chopped up and eaten by jeans, but also <laughs> there's some awareness raising that occurs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Rachel always says uh, horror movies that have some kind of social message in them. It's like the sugar that makes the medicine go. Mm -hmm. down, yes. You know? mm -hmm. It's one of the reasons it's my favorite genre. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. So can you tell us anything about what you have planned in the future stuff we can get excited about in the way that we got excited about Slack yes. a couple of years ago? Yes. Well, absolutely. So Patricia and I have been working together since our first feature. So that was like, like I said, 20 years ago. And uh, about 20 years awesome. ago, we came up with um, a TV show idea called Sweet Blood. It's a vampire TV show. Ooh. It's a new take okay. on the vampire where vampires are actually genetical abnormalities so they're humans who mm. have come to believe they're supernatural creatures and our show starts oh. when the main character lucas is living in suburbia with his pregnant human wife so he set up oh. this like alternative uh, life and has has put away his vampire nature 
and then two members of his uh, blood drinking tribe, because they don't call themselves vampires, come and crash into his lovely suburban house to demand that he helps them procreate once more because they're dying off because they're so inbred. So he has to come into contact with his vampire nature and decide whether or not he's going to help them. And of course, this creates a whole bunch of problems for him and his wife and who he thinks he is. And and it also affects the vampires who come because they they have been brought up to to believe a certain thing about humanity and they're confronted by their own uh, desires and fears and all that. Mm. Oh, I like that. That sounds really good. And it sounds like ripe for political discourse. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's like the vampires are communists, basically. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. They come from a really tight-knit um, community that believes in self-sufficiency and in uh, really being cut off from the world. But um, not believing in consumer values or anything. And then they they come into contact with suburbia and, and oh, one of wow. them, you know, decries it and thinks it's horrible. Then one is sort of lured by the siren song of uh, consumerism and the human wife yeah. over the course of the season realizes that she's been very disconnected and she actually is longing for uh, reconnection and, and to get rid of the, or to leave the, the isolated, alienated, um, North American suburban life. So so they all have different arcs sort of revolving around the idea of of their own alienation. Sounds fantastic. I can't wait to see it. Thanks. We hope <laughs> it wait. gets produced. I mean, we're it's out there, you know, we're looking for for producers and uh we have a few producers involved but uh, interested, but we're looking for you know, broadcasters. So I hope it comes to be. That's great. I'm sending it into the universe. Yes. Universe, you owe this to us. (laughs) We want it. We'll watch it. Come on. And there's, you know, hot vampires, of course. So, of course. You can't go wrong with hot vampires. (laughs) So, uh, where can our audience find you online? Do you have social media? Uh, Yeah, not much, though, because I find social media really sort of. Uh, disruptive in my mental process (laughs) so I'm on Facebook you know people are welcome to contact me on Facebook and I have my my website so if people want to find out more about me but I'm not on Twitter or Instagram I find it too difficult to be creative and also keep up a social media presence so I'm I really just paired it down to the essentials I mean, that's probably best for everyone's mental health. <laughs> it's how yeah, I need to totally operate, you know, and I know people are like, no, you should have Instagram, you should have Twitter. I'm like, I can only manage Facebook, you guys. Otherwise, I would be doing this all day and maybe I should hire someone, but I don't have money to hire someone to do that. And I think, you know, it would be disingenuous. It's not me. So, right. right. Sure. I mean, hopefully when this thing gets off the ground, you can have an assistant do that just because we're going to be nosy and want to know how it's going. Yeah. (laughs) But I totally, I I actually, I mean, I would love to disengage from social media entirely myself. So I applaud you Mm. for breaking the chain. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for sure. I mean, Patricia and I are, we know that people like to hear updates and stuff. So we are looking Mm -hmm. to, to maybe find someone who can help us. Um, not pretend that they're us, but, um, right. you know, keep people informed and, and interact with people. So uh, hopefully sure. we can find someone who can help us because she's even worse than I am. Like, she, <laughs> if you think I'm a social media hermit, whoa, <laughs> she's worse. <laughs> so, it's a challenge for us. That's the way to go. 
<laughs> well, thank you so, so much for being so generous with your time. This was so oh, much bet. fun. Yeah. Congratulations on Slacks. I know it's going to do nothing but propel you and Patricia to new exciting places. And then when audiences get to check it out on Shutter, you're going to have a legion of new fans because it is an absolute yeah, blast. Yeah, we loved it. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was super fun. Okay. Well, when, when you get Sweet Blood off the ground, you'll have to come back. Yes. And we can talk about absolutely. it. If you'd like to, you're yes. absolutely welcome, whatever. Oh, it's a treat. <laughs> Artists love talking about their their projects. So it would be really a thrill. Great. Great. Good. All right. So that was our interview with Elza Kephart, who once again uh, continues to prove my theory that female directors are uh, t- all totally awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Totally thoughtful, really creative, powerful women. And reminds me of why we decided to start this podcast in the first place is getting to elevate these voices. And even just on our little small corner of the internet, it's really exciting. So, so I don't know. Did you have a good time? I'm just rambling here. I'm doing my, I'm doing my fangirl. You got to stop me, Ariel. Step in, save me from myself. (laughs) No, that was really great. I mean, just like the other directors we've gotten a chance to interview lately, she was really smart. And I loved when she was talking about including some of those political messages Mm -hmm. in her movie. And again, this movie is just so much fun. And it was really interesting to get to hear her talking about the practical effects and how she really loved the practical effects used in movies from the 80s and 90s, because I know we are big favorites of those too. Oh, yes. Yeah. So yeah, it was just really fun. I'm really glad we got to do that. Definitely. So Slacks, for the, if you have not already put it in your eyeballs, that hits Shudder on March 18th. We're obviously recording this before then. So through the magic of time and podcasting, I believe it's already on Shutter. And this one is absolutely worth your time. You should yes, definitely it check it out. It is an it is both the political sort of like you said, the the vitamins with the sugar. Um, but also it's such a crowd pleaser. Like grab a friend or by yourself, whatever the case may be and check. Don't miss this one. This is a fun one. Yeah, it was a blast. All right, Errol, you want to take us out? Sure. Thank you so much for listening to this very special episode of the More Deadly podcast, where we got to interview amazing director Elza Kephart. We hope you guys enjoyed it, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye, everybody. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and to my co-host and good friend Ariel for always teaching me something new. Production on this episode was done by yours truly and edited by Ariel. Our theme song for the show is More Deadly by DJ Sharton.